Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Uh, we have a great lineup of folks uh, here to speak with you today, and uh, in the interest of time, I'm just going to kick it straight over. Actually, what I'll do is I'll introduce all three speakers and then kick it over to our first speaker, Julian Sanchez. Let me introduce them in the order uh, that we'll hear from them. First up will be, uh, as I said, Julian Sanchez. He's a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, he joins us at Cato after stints at, at Ars Technica, which is a, a technology news website, and uh, Reason Magazine, uh, a great libertarian publication. Uh, he studied philosophy and political science at New York University. Um, after Julian, we will hear from uh, Charles Kennedy, Charlie Kennedy. Uh, he's an expert on cyber law and privacy. And uh, he's held a, a variety of positions. Uh, uh, currently, he is a partner at, uh, I didn't write down the, the law firm, it's a mouthful. Thank you very much for the assist there. Uh, and uh, he has a JD from the University of Chicago Law School and also studied at Florida State University. Uh, and finally, we'll hear from uh, Will DeVries. He is a uh, policy counsel at Google. Uh, if you're not familiar with Google, they do have a website. I believe it's Google.com. If you can't remember that, you just go to AskJeeves.com, punch in Google, and it'll take you right there. Uh, prior to joining Google, he worked at Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale Indoors and Associate. Uh, he holds degrees uh, at, from Princeton University and the University of California in Berkeley. And with that, Julian. Thanks. I'm uh, looking around the room. I'm hoping perhaps I'm not the only person uh, with fond recollections of the Thundercats theme song and uh, the sweet sound of a 2400 baud modem connecting because uh, I, I do want to begin as we approach the 25th anniversary of the uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986 with uh, just a little bit of shameless geek nostalgia. Um, so as we approach the end of 2011, uh, this iPhone 4 is uh, already on its way to obsolescence. I'm sorry, Will, that it's not an Android. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a pretty standard device. Probably most of you uh, have in your pocket something pretty similar. It's a phone, uh, mobile internet device, and, uh, you know, in case you're forced to be off the grid for a couple hours, it's got about 16 gig of uh, local storage. Um, in 1986, at the time, the rules still governing uh, our electronic privacy from government intrusion were crafted. Uh, this was the cutting edge in mobile telephony. Uh, there were about half a million mobile subscribers. Um, it was uh, really the end of the decade before you had a better chance than one in a hundred of running into someone uh, who was rocking one of these bad boys, and it's not that not surprising why. Uh, there were also in the whole country about 1,200 cell towers serving those half million subscribers, meaning that if you happened to uh, get someone's call records uh, in a way that registered the nearest tower that they had made a call from, that wouldn't do a whole lot to tell you about where they'd been. Um, if you're talking about uh, wireless internet access, or at least getting online. This was sort of the cutting edge in terms of uh, mobile network access. This is an uh, Epson CX20. This is with, uh, with an acoustic coupler. So when I say mobile here, I don't, of course, mean really mobile. Um, but the next best thing was you could take a, a portable computer and jam a, a, an old landline handset on, uh, on this. and. Uh, dial in at the blazing speed of 300 bits per second, which is a little faster than you can read text. Um, the sort of cutting edge at the time was tw uh, blazing 2400 uh, bits per second. Um, you're lucky to afford one of these and also be able to uh, get online by a, a service like CompuServe. You could expect to pay the equivalent in 2011 dollars of 25, 40, maybe even 50 dollars uh, per hour to connect, depending on uh, when and where you tried to dial in. Um, and then finally, in terms of data storage, what were you downloading on that? Well, um, you know, this is the uh, standard for data storage at the time. These were the denser ones would hold about 720 kilobytes. Um, so if you had about 23,000 of these, um, you'd have a comparable amount of data to uh, uh, what you could uh, uh, expect in one of these. Um, same year, 16, 16 gig is about 20 bucks if you want to uh, get that in the form of a flash drive. Hard disk space was, uh, if anything, more expensive. I uh, saw a great old ad from about 1986 yesterday, um, which 
said, is it really possible to get a reliable hard disk holding 10 megabytes for only $695? Um, I mean, that was a great deal. Um, more common was consumer prices per megabyte in about, of about $100, uh, $100 per megabyte in 1986 dollars. That's more like 180 today. Um, so what, uh, you know, what beyond the fact that we're better off than our counterparts in the 80s in ways that go beyond hairstyles um, is the point of that? Um, well, the point is that rules governing privacy, rules governing, governing uh, government access to data are always embedded in assumptions about technology and assumptions about what level of private information is going to be disclosed uh, by a certain set of standards for access to that information. So for example, uh, and, and I know Charlie will get into more detail on this, um, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act provides a relatively high level of protection for communications in transit um, and then much less protection for communications that have been read or downloaded. Why? Well, because if you were paying $25 or $50 an hour to connect to CompuServe at speeds of about 2,400 bits per second and storage was that expensive, you could assume that basically everyone was connecting, downloading their email, and then reading it on their own personal computer where the full protection of the Fourth Amendment applied, right? To read an email on someone's private computer, uh, the government would have to physically seize it, search it, uh, using a probable cause warrant. So there was uh, warrant-like protection for email that was briefly stored before it had been downloaded. Um, but the law creates a different set of standards that apply once, uh, once the email's been downloaded. The result, though, in a context where we are used to uh, engaging in communications that are stored indefinitely in the cloud, is that the same email over the course of its transit can be subject to a whole array of different legal standards, meaning that an email that is stored as a domestic draft on my local hard drive uh, is protected differently from the email that's stored as a draft in the cloud on Google servers, is protected differently from the email in transit on the wire, it gets the highest level of protection there, it actually requires more than a search warrant, is protected differently from the email that's landed in someone's inbox, uh, depending on your circuit, maybe uh, subject to a different level of protection once it's been read. Um, and then, yet again, it may be relevant whether it's been there for more than 180 days, because again, it was assumed no one would actually keep an email in storage for 180 days. That was crazy. Um, similar assumptions apply, again, given the incredibly high cost of data storage, to the kind of information that would be accessible to uh, uh, police seeking it with, uh, other than the contents of communications. That is to say, um, if you talk about access to something, what the law calls toll billing records, right? Um, as, as with the phone, that might mean a list of uh, toll calls and the numbers you would dial. For something like CompuServe, it would probably just mean, um, you know, a record that you logged in on Wednesday night for three hours um, and not much more than that. Again, it was expensive to store things. And so the information that was going to be stored uh, in that form by an online service provider would be fairly limited. It wouldn't be, as it now is, an incredibly detailed record of essentially your whole life to the extent that our lives are increasingly permeated by ubiquitously connected technology that is cheaper to store than to go out of your way to delete. And when I talk about sensitive information, I mean detailed records that show what you're reading every day, what political and religious groups you're participating in, uh, potentially um, an identifier that reveals you as uh, the author of anonymous speech you may have engaged in online. Um, these are all, of course, uh, kinds of information that, aside from their privacy implications, uh, have profoundly important First Amendment implications insofar as easy access, that is access without probable cause, but rather access pursuant to a subpoena um, or to uh, a court order based merely on a showing of relevance, which is an extraordinarily broad uh, category, um, uh, you know, weakens the practical level of privacy Americans enjoy tremendously, um, even though the rules have stayed exactly the same. Uh, it's the same as the shift we already saw, and I know Charlie will talk about this, um, with the initial advent of the telephone. Um, where a rule that prevented only government searches that involved physical trespass was sufficiently protected 
protective of people's privacy until you no longer needed to trespass to learn incredibly detailed information about people's private communications. Um, this is obviously only going to uh, you know, increase as more information goes to the cloud. It's pretty clear that both iOS and Android in their newest versions are moving toward a cloud model where, again, the default is going to be that information on your phone, photos and videos you've taken, uh, emails you're sending are stored primarily not on the device itself, but on someone else's computer, on someone else's server. Um, and, you know, people basically expect, especially as this process becomes more seamless and less transparent to the user, that their data has the same level of protection regardless of where it is. Uh, and this is especially the case, again, when people aren't even necessarily aware or conscious of whether a photo they're taking with their phone is stored here or only here or also in the cloud, whether an email that they've received is being downloaded to the device or is being accessed remotely on a server. Um, you know, polls consistently show that if you want to talk about, uh, as, as the legal term of art has it, people's reasonable expectations of privacy, you know, upwards of 80% of poll respondents tell people they think um, the government should need the same kind of probable cause warrant to track people's online activity that they do to wiretap a phone, um, you know, given the percentage of internet users who are shown to have uh, searched for and downloaded porn online, that is not terribly surprising. Um, the same results when you ask people about uh, internet tracking, or uh, rather physical tracking, that is to say, the standard that police should need to meet to get a physical map of where you go day to day. Again, as storage costs have fallen, this is increasingly information that's stored in incredible detail. Um, so, you know, again, there used to be 1,200 cell sites uh, serving uh, half a million subscribers. Now, upwards of 90% of uh, the American public has a cell phone, certainly at least under 30. Um, and the size of the cells that those phones are connecting to is shrinking. So that, whereas it used to be that uh, even in a dense urban area, it would be hundreds of meters covered by a single site, um, now it's the case that a single building, a single conference room, a single subway station may be covered by a single tower. Uh, and the next generation of cell towers are these basically, to go back to the 80s nostalgia theme, uh, Rubik's Cube sized devices where it'll, I think, be increasingly common to have one in individual buildings, meaning knowing that toll billing information, that calling record information that says when your phone connected every time it made a call or maybe made a data query or maybe automatically checked your email will be tantamount to having a 24-hour map of someone's movements. And we know again because storage is so cheap, uh, certain carriers, AT&T for one, now keep location information about cell connection indefinitely. That is to say, if you are a law enforcement officer and you want cell location information, AT&T will have a map of most of their subscribers' physical locations going back now to 2008 and stored indefinitely. So, I mean, think of the furor that was caused when it was learned that Apple was storing on their devices, um, you know, a, a year-long map of people's locations, and think that that's basically all AT&T subscribers now with uh, a highly detailed map of their locations over time, revealing who they've gone, and if you cross-collate that information, who they've been associating with, who they've been spending time with and physically, uh, you know, physically associating with. Um, the disconnect then between the way we use information uh, technologies and the rules that govern police access to that information has become deeper and more profound and is only going to become more so as uh, our data moves more and more into the cloud. Um, I note, incidentally, for, for those who uh, care about this sort of thing, uh, that while it's only about 17% uh, of uh, white cell phone users for whom it's their primary means of internet access, um, for black and Latino smartphone users, it's, uh, near, it's about 40% uh, or, or higher, which means that those users are more likely to rely on the cloud for data storage, which means those people's sensitive private information is more likely to be stored in a way that gives it less legal protection. And I think we you know, recognize that privacy often uh, has these sort of inequalities. If you have a large estate and a large home, it's easier to have privacy. Um, but these rules, I think, uh, you know, work in a way, one, that creates uncertainty and confusion for users and providers, but also, uh, you know, threatens to embed 
uh, a kind of economic and, uh, and class disparity in the level of privacy users uh, should enjoy. So I think uh, as, as we look at the enormous distance we've come from the time when the laws governing our electronic privacy were crafted, um, you know, the need for an upgrade, the need for an ECPA 2.0 uh, is, is uh, dire and overdue. Thank you, Julian, very much. Uh, <clears throat> my involvement with, uh, with ECPA started really when I was teaching as an adjunct at uh, Catholic University, which I still do. And every year I teach a couple days worth of, uh, of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act as part of my cyber law course. And, and I recall uh, putting it on the syllabus the first time way back, say, in 95, and thinking, well, you know, the night before the class, I'll open this thing up and see what it says. And uh, <clears throat> I really wanted to call in sick that day because I had no idea what I was reading. And uh, still, sometimes I get perplexed and I find new things. And I want to uh, provide a little context for this statute. Why does it seem so peculiar? Uh, why does it uh, so badly need to be uh, updated? And what are some of the things that you have to think about that arise out of the history, uh, technological, and legal background uh, of this statute? Uh, the first thing to know about it is that it's uh, not really a 1986 statute entirely. We talk about this being the anniversary of the 1986 ECPA, which is correct. And, but it was really a 1968 statute that was amended in 1986. And the, uh, the original statute came out of two Supreme Court decisions, the Berger and the Katz decisions, in 1967. And those decisions established that there is, under the Fourth Amendment, a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, when your calls or your conversations are, are bugged or intercepted. This wasn't clear until then. In fact, uh, in the Olmstead case in 1928 that Julian alluded to, uh, the Supreme Court over in a dissent by Justice Brandeis held that as long as there was no physical trespass involved in a wiretap, that uh, there was no search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment. By the way, I recommend Ken Burns' Prohibition series with particular reference to Mr. Olmstead. Uh, I didn't know the whole history, but Mr. Olmstead was the bootlegger in Seattle, apparently. Uh, he had been busted as a police officer for taking bribes from these people, then decided he wanted to join them. But apparently his wiretap Fourth Amendment claim was basically his entire strategy for beating this rap. It's amazing how much was, was hanging on that decision. Uh, his, uh, his operation had been busted, and if you read the a uh, factual summary or recitation in the Supreme Court's case in Olmstead, they, they give you an idea of the uh, scale of the operation. Uh, the contraband seized included, you know, dozens of telephones, uh, some boats, and uh, I think they said two lawyers. The, the way the decision was written suggested that the attorneys themselves were, were contraband. Peculiar. <clears throat> uh, I feel, I feel that way sometimes myself. In any case, in Katz versus uh, United States in 1967, uh, the, uh, the challenge was, was presented to Congress to catch up with the Fourth Amendment and write our first <coughs> uh, effective wiretap law. Uh, there was a law on the books, but uh, there were no remedies except suppression. It didn't apply to the states, and it was quite weak. The 1968 Act the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968 uh, caught up with the Fourth Amendment. One thing that's uh, vital to know when you talk about ECPA is the interplay with the Fourth Amendment and how sometimes uh, the Congress is catching up with the Constitution and sometimes the Congress is doing better than the Constitution does. To some extent, uh, what many people are asking for now is to do a little better than the Fourth Amendment might require. Uh, in the 1968 Act, uh, the, uh, the Congress was catching up with the Fourth Amendment. There are other things that they've done, uh, such as the Stored Communications Act and the Pen Register Trap Trace Statute, where uh, they are providing protections that are greater than the courts have found the, the Fourth Amendment to require. And this is an entirely legitimate thing for a legislature to do. Uh, obviously, the Fourth Amendment puts a floor under congressional action, but not a ceiling. And as in the present debate, uh, 
many people, many many people in Congress and uh, and uh, and their constituents are looking for greater privacy protections than maybe they would get from a strict Fourth Amendment analysis. Anyhow, let's go back to 1968, an even simpler world than the one we have today. <coughs> many of us were not doing anything useful in 1968, although we were active. Uh, but there were grown-ups uh, working on legislation, including in this area. In 1968, there were two things that you had to worry about where government surveillance was concerned. They could tap your phone, which was a landline phone provided by a monopoly carrier, or they could put a bug in a room like this one and uh, intercept what you were saying and record it, maybe send it to a remote site. That's pretty much it. We didn't have mobile communications. We didn't have, uh, really in any serious way, any stored communications. You didn't have online computing, except in a very, very uh, uh, embryonic state, uh, where, where there were some service bureaus and, and there were some people trying to uh, process data over phone lines, but it wasn't really a factor. So this 1968 statute says that, subject to certain exceptions, the government and private parties, by the way, and here again, this is going beyond the Fourth Amendment, could not intercept the contents of a wire or oral communication. Wire communication has an enormously long definition. Basically, it's a phone call. Uh, the, the definition of oral communication is essentially what I'm doing now. I'm talking to you in a room. And because what I'm saying now has no expectation of privacy, because all of you are here, and because we have uh, media here, uh, the 1968 Act doesn't protect what I'm saying because I lack an expectation of privacy, and that's written right into the definition of oral communication. So, 1968, we get a wiretap law that gradually comes under pressure as technology advances, and eventually we get the 1968 Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which was, we should always say when we talk about reforming it, a very forward-looking statute that was catching a lot of technologies on the cusp of their development and, uh, and, and trying very hard to accommodate them within the framework. But what did we have between 68 and 86? We had, among other things, non-common carrier uh, phone companies, communication companies. Uh, the Bell system uh, was finally divested uh, by an order uh, entered in 82 uh, by Judge Green here in Washington, and that took effect in 84. And now you had private networks and non-Bell uh, commercial networks. The original definition of a wire communication in 68 included that it be carried by a common carrier. So this no longer uh, was sufficient. Mobile communications. Uh, the first cellular licenses awarded starting in 1981. As Julian said, far from a ubiquitous service by 1986, uh, but nonetheless a factor. And email and other kinds of uh, remote computing and communication services. No public internet, obviously, but uh, within many organizations you did have, you did have email. 1986 Act stepped up to these things by doing a few things. It changed the definition of a wire communication, so it wasn't just a landline phone call, but was also a mobile call. And it could be something carried over a non-common carrier network, so that was one thing. Uh, oral communication uh, stayed much the same. A new category was adopted, electronic communication, which was defined very expansively in a way that certainly took into account uh, email and uh, uh, a number of other uh, services that uh, were not voice uh, communication services. All of that was taken into account. What they could not take into account fully in 1986, of course, were things that were going to uh, come along later. And they made distinctions of the 1986 Act that give us a lot of trouble today, but were not exactly crazy at the time. Uh, Julian referred to one. Uh, in the portion of ECPA that's often called the Stored Communications Act, which starts at 2701-18 U.S. Code, there is protection for stored communications, like stored email. It's not as strong as the protection, as Julian said, for communications in transit. 
And one reason for that was that the Supreme Court had articulated what we now call the third party doctrine. Uh, they did that in the context of other industries like banking, but it essentially said that if you share information with a third party like a bank or a carrier, uh, you don't have the expectation of privacy uh, that you have if you had not shared it. In the uh, uh, legislative history of ECPA, you can see Congress uh, saying that, well, we're aware of this doctrine. We still think that people expect some level of protection, but not as strong. Within the Stored Communications Act, uh, besides being itself not as strong as the protection for communications in transit, there's this 180-day rule. I think Julian explained very well why the 180-day rule uh, made some sense uh, at the time. Uh, lesser protection for stored communications meant lesser protection uh, for what we now know as communications in the cloud. But no one foresaw at the time that enormous <coughs> amounts of data that uh, might be highly private and confidential to the persons who originated it would be stored in anything like the cloud. Finally, mobile geolo geolocation data. Uh, as, as Julian said, Cell phones always communicated with cell towers and always made their locations known. This is necessary in order to uh, uh, contact the nearest cell tower site and hand off uh, your communication to another closer site as you move. But it wasn't really up on the radar uh, as far as law enforcement in 1986. So just to bring this around to the present time, yeah, and. Oh, let me say one other thing that's always struck me as odd, but perhaps was not at the time. No definition of what a communication is. You have definitions in ECPA of a uh, wire communication, which is essentially a voice communication, mobile or landline. Uh, you have the definition of an electronic communication, and you have definitions of oral communications, but no definition of a communication. I think this is one of those cases where a statute didn't need to define certain things because in the real world it was pretty clear what those things were. A communication was something essentially that was human initiated. That was something that I might send to another person, a voice call, an email, whatever. In fact, there are human initiated communications that go to computers. And they go the other way too. And there are communications that are initiated and that occur strictly between devices, like the cell phone announcing its location to a cell tower. Is that a communication? And do you distinguish, as ECPA does, here's another point I should make, do you distinguish, as ECPA does, between the contents of that communication and the circumstances of the communication? Uh, we don't know. One other point about ECPA I want to make. Uh, that is a dichotomy in the statute uh, that we've had trouble with, of course, is content versus non-content. Both in 1968 and in 1986, uh, the statute said that uh, the prohibition only goes to uh, acquisition of the contents of a communication. And this was distinguished pretty easily in 68, certainly. Uh, a telephone call involved a voice circuit that permitted you to talk to somebody at uh, 4 kilohertz uh, bandwidth, but it also involved setup and signaling and takedown information that could tell somebody who you called, when the call was made, when it terminated, and so forth. The conversation was content, the signaling information was non-content information. In 1968, it was not protected at all in the statute. Uh, it could be acquired pretty much at will. Uh, we got the uh, pen register uh, Act, the Pen Register Trap and Trace Act somewhat later, and now there is a, a level of protection uh, for that information, which extends also to the addressing and routing information for email as well as for phone calls. But again, we're in an era now where we're talking about distinguishing content from non-content or trying to with geolocation data. We're trying to distinguish it in the context of web searches and web results. and. Uh, we're trying to reform uh, ECPA against the background of all of these confusions. I hope this provides some context. I won't rattle on about this any further because we want to be here for questions. So I'll stop and turn this over, I think, to Will. Thanks so much, Charlie. Um, 
following that voice, it's, I want you to like record all of my books so I can listen to them on tape. I just I love that voice. I, I have like you know if there's faces that are made for radio, I have a voice that's made for silent movies. So um, I'm gonna go back a little bit real quick to. Um, just the technology again. I, I thought the visual aids Julian had were astounding and much better than I'm going to bring, but there's a couple of things that I still just find amazing. So in 1986, of course, there's no World Wide Web. Uh, email is being used by a handful of, of academics and engineers. Um, uh, only 340,000 Americans had cell phone service. That's about the population of Tampa. Um, and there was no such thing as text messaging. So let's, you know, of course today, one of the interesting things I see is email. So, so we're sort of saying email didn't really almost exist in 1986. Email is now almost passe. We read these articles about how kids, email is, is too formal and takes too long to write. So they actually use messaging instead of email. Um, I was gonna, I had a stat in here about how, how storage was, you know, uh, cheaper, computer storage was cheaper by a factor of X, but actually that, that's not true anymore. Storage is free. Uh, you can sign up for Dropbox and get two gigabytes for nothing. You can sign up for Gmail and get seven gigabytes for nothing. So, so we're really talking about storage is now free. Um, and uh, in terms of cell phone use, so we had 340,000 Americans using cell phones in 1986. Um, there are now 12 million more active cell phones in the United States than there are people. So um, we are obviously in a very different world. By the way, 12 million more than there are people. That's every man, woman, and child. I, I really have had to stare at that stat for a while. I looked that up last night. Um, uh, but I, I guess there's enough people, probably many of you, who carry a BlackBerry and your own personal phones. Anyway, that's a lot of cell phones. So um, we also talked about the cloud. So what is the cloud? Um, the cloud is just engineering shorthand for the internet. So when people drew the internet, engineers drew the internet back in the day and, and still today, um, rather than draw all of the sort of the lines and the nodes and the things that would connect from, from one uh, you know, server or one computer to another, they just drew a giant cloud and they say data goes in, data comes out. So that's basically what the cloud means. And, and I always say that because I, I've actually been asked sometimes by people who are too embarrassed to say in a sort of more public venue, they, they come up to me and they say, what do you mean by the cloud? So that's just the cloud. And now it's a marketing term, obviously, but we're really just talking about the internet, right? Um, so that giant network of networks uh, over which all our data is seamlessly transmitted and, and we don't really even think about, but it's just a miracle of engineering. So what does the cloud mean for us? For consumers, that means uh, using applications that are internet-based uh, and storage as internet-based, that's things like Gmail, Google Docs, Calendar, um, all of those other great products from other people. If people use uh, Spotify, that's a cloud-based you know, music service. Um, for businesses, uh, the cloud means uh, remote storage, remote processing, software as a service, um, rather than local storage and local computing and all of the resources and energy that that implies. So the cloud saves money, it's more flexible, uh, it improves security. Um, you know, you're not going to, when you're, uh, this is a, a Chromebook, it's an entirely cloud-based um, operating system, so if I left this here when I walked out of the room and I forgot it and someone picked it up and they tried to get any data off of it, there would be no data off of it, all the data would be on the cloud. So you have a lot more security on the cloud as well. Um, and it also allows things that are literally impossible um, without the internet uh, enabling them. Things like, if you've ever seen, um, one of my favorite things that happened when I first came to Google was using real-time uh, uh, docs, Google Docs, and having multiple people edit. And so I was an associate at a law firm. I don't know if anyone else here ever worked at a law firm in any environment like this, where my job uh, for many, many, many hours um, over the course of days often was <laughs> reconciling conflicting edits on document from different people. So the first time that I saw a document that could be in real time edited by multiple people and I didn't have to go in and figure out overlapping edits and resolve them on a document, I, I was sold. The cloud is amazing. So. That's what, uh, that's what the cloud is, that's what the, where the technology is. So what are the problems with ECBA for the cloud? Um, well, to be, to be basically blunt, it's, it's confusing. Um, it's confusing for Google, it's confusing for our users, uh, it's confusing for our enterprise customers. Um, we just don't understand how to operate in this environment now. Um, so take the 180-day rule. 180-day rule we've already talked about a couple times, but um, just to, to reiterate, what it basically means that is uh, it, the content of a communication, which is protected um, under uh, the Stored Communications Act, which is part of ECPA, um, content of a communication is protected with a warrant standard. Uh, you've got to go to judge and show probable cause and get a warrant uh, for 180 days, after which it goes to a subpoena standard. 
uh, subpoena with notice. The notice can be waived in exigent circumstances. So you've got um, basically going from the standard of a judge having to review and find that you've got probable cause to basically just being able to, to, to have an, a government authority send a subpoena and get the information back. That's, that's what happens to content after six months. So your email that's older than six months could be available to any government authority that asks for it who has subpoena power if they just simply send Google an, uh, uh, or any of your other online providers uh, a subpoena in the mail and says, send me this person's information. Now, we will try to make sure that we can get notice to you, um, as many other responsible providers do, um, and, uh, but you know, that notice can be waived in many circumstances. So that's, that's the 180-day rule. Now take, for example, a Google document. So we have online document uh, uh, processing software. So you go online and you upload a document um, and you add some co-editors so that they can view that document and see what you uplo uploaded. Um, 179 days later, you go on and you edit that document a little bit. Have you restarted the 180-day clock? Or is that still from the 180 days when you first shared it with those people? Um, totally unknown question, not resolved by any court. Uh, I'll take another one. Um, under ECPA, so, so I, 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 I've taught as an adjunct in law school, so I'm going to do this a little Socratic method. Um, what is the stand? Anyone out there? Raise your hand if, if you feel comfortable with ECPA, that you've at least worked with it a little bit. You know some of the terms. I see some people out there who can't deny it, that they at least know. All right, I see a couple of people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call on Ross over here from CCIA. Ross, um, the to and from addressing information. If, someone, if, a, if you were a prosecutor and you wanted to get that information, what standard would you have to meet to get that? So, so if if you, it's not, it's not in the statute. The so, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call on someone else. Oh, here, oh, oh, I see Kevin Bankston from EFF in the back. Uh, <laughs> reasonable and specific and articulable facts that it's relevant to the investigation, i.e., a 2703 order. Uh, ex excellent. Circle gets the squares. Um, um, but good class participation, Ross. Thank you very much. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, a 2703D order, right, which is a kind of an intermediate standard. You have to go to a judge, you have to show specific facts, but it's not a probable cause standard. Um, uh, you have to go to, but you do have to have a judge actually sign off on an order. Um, so that's what you get for to and from address, uh, addressing information on email. There's no six-month limit to that. So what do you do if you have an email, someone subpoenas, uh, uh, you know, uh, you're a, a provider and you provide email services, and someone gives you a subpoena and says, please provide the email for this user Anything over six months, I'm sending you a subpoena, please provide it. Um, so the content of that email, you know that you have to provide that over with that subpoena. But what about the to and from information? Well, that would actually probably be governed under this other uh, section of the statute, which requires a judge's order. So interestingly, probably the less sensitive information, the to and from uh, addressing information, you couldn't provide. But the content of the email, you could provide and you would have to provide, in fact. So this is very confusing, also not resolved by the courts. Um, it's hard to know where to go with this. So um, only about a handful of lawyers in this country, um, several of which are in the room, understand this uh, statute. Um, and you know, people are really stumped. And, and here's one other thing. Why don't we know the answers to these questions? Why don't we know them? Why aren't the courts resolving these questions and giving us some clarity? Well, ECPA, uh, and specifically in the Stored Communications Act, does not have an exclusionary remedy. So that means that if you're a criminal defendant and prosecutors are going after you and they want certain evidence, uh, you go to a magistrate judge, uh, or th they have to go to a magistrate judge and get an order that says they can, they can get this evidence. Um, you can't appeal that and say, exclude, it from, uh, exclude that evidence from my criminal trial. So if the magistrate says, sure, go ahead and get this information, you as a criminal defendant have no, no incentive to actually appeal that decision and say, uh, I don't think this is right. I think this evidence is not, uh, should not be handed over in terms of the statute. So the, the, the criminal defendant would have no incentive to appeal. And the prosecutor on the other side, things move fast. They're trying to get bad guys. They don't want to spend the time waiting the six months it would take or, or whatever it would take to appeal up to a circuit court to get an answer to a question. They're going to find another way to get the evidence and go after the bad guy, right? So on both sides, there's very little incentive to appeal these orders. Um, so as a result, it's very confusing. We don't know very well. We have a, a really, really great staff who works full time on this. Um, but people don't really know how to move forward on this. And what does that mean then? Well, it doesn't conform to our, uh, necessarily conform to the reasonable, user's reasonable expectations of privacy. All of that as a result means that 
People aren't going to want to adopt the cloud as readily as they would otherwise. Our enterprise customers in particular, we hear these questions from them all the time. I think most users out there um, have, as Julian gave some, some stats, over 80% of users would imagine that this, the higher standard would apply. They don't realize that the standard is actually lower for their online documents than it is for their documents on their desktop. If they found out, I think that you'd also see uh, uh, people being more nervous about moving to the cloud, which, as I said, is more secure, more efficient, more flexible. So what is Google doing? Um, we're doing a couple of things. We've joined Digital Due Process, which is a coalition of, of companies and organizations, many of which are here. Uh, you've got people from the ACLU to Americans for Tax Reform. You've got companies from AT&T to Microsoft to Google. Um, so a really broad coalition working for some sensible, common sense reforms to this law. Um, and you've got, uh, uh, Google has our transparency report. So there's these little green booklets. They're outside if you haven't gotten one. On page 11 is uh, our government our government report, our transparency report and government request tool. Um, so we are the only company that I'm aware of that is actually making available the data about the requests that we get. Now we're, we're of course just a tiny sliver of the total request that uh, government sends out for user data, but we are making our data available so that you can see by country, um, broken down by product, um, how many requests we are getting for user data. Um, and we are continuing to make that data more granular and we hope that better data is gonna lead to better policy making. So that's why we're making that available. Um, and so with that, um, I'll, uh, I'll wrap it up there. Let me just actually add very quickly, because I, I do think it's so important what Google's doing here by, by providing some level of transparency about the volume of these data requests. Because, you know, uh, when it comes to wiretaps, there is a report every year, mandatory, issued by uh, the Justice Department and by the Administrative Office of the U.S. Court, revealing the aggregate number of wiretaps and what kind of cases they're used in each year. Um, for certain kinds of intelligence tools, like national security letters, um, there's additional reporting on that and on the number of intelligence wiretaps. But as more useful information moves outside the category of wiretaps, there's an information vacuum. So every year in that, uh, in that annual report showing how many criminal investigation wiretaps were sought at the federal and state and local levels, there's a section. Uh, it says how many of these were cell phone, almost all, and how many were for electronic communications, data or internet wiretaps. Um, and every year, usually that number is zero or something real close to zero. Um, and the reason for this is not that, um, you know, police are stuck in 1986 and don't know that criminals use the internet. The reason is that if you have a choice between applying for a Title III wiretap uh, order, which is actually harder to get than a physical search warrant, or getting an order that just requires you to convince a judge of uh, relevance to an investigation, uh, or, or even, again, maybe a subpoena in some cases, um, that's a no-brainer. Why would you go through all those hoops to pick up an email on the wire when you can pick up the same email five minutes after it lands um, for a lot less paperwork? Um, the result, though, again, is that we have no real idea of the quantity of that kind of tracking, because it's not captured in the wiretap numbers. When it comes to something like location tracking, again, we don't really know how often uh, different agencies use your cell phone as a tracking device, but we do know, we have you know, some FOIA requests have produced a little bit of data about this, and we know that uh, the U.S. Marshal Service um, sometimes gets requests for real-time uh, cell phone transaction data, which includes location information, so by default, when they, when they get this metadata about phone numbers, they also get location information. And we know that in 2009, that one agency, U.S. Marshal Service, uh, got more orders for that kind of transactional and location information than all the wiretaps that year in criminal investigations, in intelligence investigations, um, at the federal, state, and local levels. All wiretaps combined were fewer than the transactional data requests from one agency. Um, and again, it's because so much of the most useful information about associations between people, about where they're spending their time, about what websites they're visiting, is so much more easily available. There's no reason to make the kind of request that triggers this reporting. But what it means is that unlike national security letters, wiretaps, and criminal investigations, intelligence wiretaps, there isn't, you know, that little piece in the newspaper every year saying, man, wiretaps are up 10%, 15%, 20%, the numbers are changing, um, should, should Congress take a look at this? It means that Congress and the public 
are operating in, the, in this technological space with no idea at all of the scale of the types of monitoring that are underway and what they're being used for. Um, the result then is that because there's no information, um, there isn't much appearance of a problem. The problem is not obvious. But of course, in the total absence of any kind of scrutiny, um, it's actually the case in which it's most likely that problems will arise. Um, you don't have that vital sunlight that ensures that uh, any abuses that might happen will be checked. So I think whatever you think about the appropriate standard for content or certain kinds of metadata or location tracking, there are good faith disagreements about exactly the level of protection different kinds of information should be uh, afforded. The fact that we're making policy or failing to change policy without the most relevant, obviously relevant facts about what's going on seems like it should be Again, a kind of bipartisan no-brainer that that is a problem. Yeah, further to Julian's point, uh, it would be great to have reporting on these other kinds of requests. All that's required right now, as Julian says, is the wiretap report, essentially. And uh, I followed those for a few years. I, I'm sure the numbers are a little uh, higher now. But uh, the first year I looked at them, there were, there were about 1,400 federal wiretap requests and about uh, an equal number of state requests. The states often get forgotten in this process. And one year I looked at, uh, one was turned down by the judge. Another year, none were turned down by the judge. This is interesting, because these are the toughest orders to get. This is the super warrant uh, under Berger, you know, where you have to show that other kinds of investigation have been tried and failed or are futile or too dangerous, so forth. Tough to get. You know, you've got a one in 1,400 chance some years of, of not making it. Uh, and, and that report also shows what, what kinds of crimes were being investigated, gives you some uh, insight into the uh, effect of the war on drugs, on all of this, uh, you know, how many, uh, how many convictions were obtained and so forth. It would be great to have this information uh, for other kinds of requests. Okay, we'll go ahead and open it up for, uh, for Q&A now. If you have a question, if I call on you, um won't require that you give your name and affiliation in the interest of your own personal privacy, but I will ask, I will ask that you, uh, you do speak up so everybody in the audience can hear you and that you keep your question relatively short so we can get to as many folks as possible. Questions? It's too early in the morning for questions? <laughs> yes, sir, in the back, please. Records. That's they refuse to produce them uh, according to the law. Yeah, it's the Freedom of Information Act is a separate, uh, is that's how you get government records. Uh, but it really regulates uh, government access to data. Charlie can stand on that if he wants. That, that's true. That, I, think, I think you'd have to bring a FOIA request uh, to do that. Uh, but ECPA uh, but does affect private action. Uh, it doesn't. And, and it, there, there is a, a private right of action for violations of the Wiretap Act. And Can I follow that up, please? Sure. This is an email with an electronic signature. I received October 13, 2011. <coughs> okay, it comes from the office of uh, Tabin Miltaw, Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, 350 Raven House Office Building. I went in and asked him a simple question where I could find a copy of the signed judicial oath of offices of federal judges and Supreme Court justices. This is his answer. Your Freedom of Information Act request dated October 1st, 2011, addressed to Representative Lamar Smith, was referred to me. Neither Congress <coughs> Neither Congress nor the judicial branch are subject to FOIA. Only the executive branch with exclusions of executive offices of the president are subject to the act. While not subject to FOIA, the administrative office of the United States Court is a number that takes its own fictitious site. May be able to help you with your records. 
Now, I petitioned every member of the U.S. Congress and Senate three times separately under FOIA to answer three questions. The constitutional amendment that allows gun distribution on signed orders, constitutional amendment that allows judges to <coughs> act out of, outside of Title 18 U.S.C. 3057, and the constitutional amendment that gives judges judicial immunity for acting outside of the oath of office. Not one response out of 1,500 or 1,700 requests. Now, do I have the right as a media to subpoena? And if you don't believe me, go to secretjustice.com, yeah. program 349. I tracked where I went to all the offices here on the Hill mm -hmm. just last week. The video's up there. Do private citizens have the right to hold government accountable for sending false electronic mail? For sending false electronic mail? Well, that's or misrepresenting the law? We're not subject to anything. We don't know anything. We don't, we're the oversight of the Congress of the United States, and we can't even tell you where the signatures of judges are. Well, I did find it. I did some research. It's under 5 U.S. I believe 2906. And it says I have to go to the Secretary of State. Let's see if we can get a response uh, to, uh, to your question there and then possibly move on. I, I don't want to take away time from other folks. Yeah, it's, it's true, but only the executive branch is subject to FOIA. And exactly what you do is a little out of my area. Does anyone else have uh, any thoughts? No, I mean, um, but just generally, even, even you know, agencies that are subject to FOIA have, uh, I think, an enormous amount of discretion. There's a whole uh, welter of exemptions in FOIA, and so one of the... Um, Including privacy. Um, and so one of, the, one of the issues there is that they, they can make it extraordinarily difficult um, for citizens to get even information that they're entitled to because most of us are not, uh, you know, prepared to uh, uh, litigate and spend uh, enormous amounts of time and money um, fighting even an appropriate denial. Um, so, you know, certainly that's a, a pretty profound asymmetry. Uh, yes, sir. Jim Harper with Cato. Uh, the Digital New Process Coalition is a significant one, as you mentioned, broad page. Uh, can you give us an update on where things are on the Hill? What's, is there legislation in the hopper? What's, yep. it, what's it looking like? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, so Digital New Process Coalition has, has sort of put forth four suggestions, two of which we really covered in depth today, two of which we didn't get into. You can take a look on, on the digitalprocess.org website. Um, but the two that we ha have, uh, have had some traction with um, on the Hill, one is the, the, the warrant standard of content. Um, that's we were talking about the 180-day rule. That's what we're talking about, the warrant standard across all content of communications. There is a bill been introduced by uh, Senator Leahy um, that would address that issue uh, pretty squarely. Uh, it also has some other good provisions in it. Um, uh, several of the members of Digital Process, including Google, have, have uh, publicly endorsed that bill. Um, there's also a, a bill on, on location privacy, um, uh, warrant standard for, all, for location data, I believe. Is it, uh, um, and Kevin Bankson can probably tell me, is it, is it just perspective or is it prospective and, and, and retrospective? Um, so, so Senator Wyden, also with Senator Kirk, uh, there's also bipartisan support in the, in, in, uh, the House, has brought forth a location privacy bill that would basically enact the second, um, the second digital due process recommendation for warrant standard for all location data. So both those are great steps forward. Um, and uh, I think there's, there's some interest, you know, as with everything, um, it's early stages, these are in committee still. Um, but we hope that, you know, this is going to be a long-term effort to, to bring, you know, modernization to ECPA. So hopefully, if, if not even this term, then we've got good momentum going forward. Is there a hand in the back? Greg Milgram from CDT. Will, what does your report show in terms of trends for law enforcement requests? And is there any inference that could be drawn from the Google data about the number of requests for information as compared to the number of wiretaps that are reported? Um, so, 
the trend in, so Google data, of course, is, is worldwide. We break it down by country. So for the U.S., since we're, we're talking about reform to a U.S. law, um, in the U.S., the, the number of requests, since, since we've been making this data available, we refresh it every six months, it has been uh, steadily increasing, not dramatically increasing, but steadily increasing. We have now uh, several thousand, uh, in the last six months, we had several thousand different requests. Now, keep in mind, requests can involve one user or they can involve many users. Um, we're trying to figure out ways to parse that data out, too, to make that more visible. So we have seen a, an increase, a steady increase, in the number of, of requests that we're getting for stored data. Uh, for our users. Um, and I, as I think we've talked about earlier, compared to wiretaps, um, you know, that, that data is either holding steady or declining, um, as, that, as wiretaps are, are more difficult, uh, obviously a much higher standard to achieve. And as Julian points out, um, often, you know, why, why intercept, intercept something across the wire when you can wait a couple of seconds and then it's a stored communication and I'll have a lower standard. Yeah, right here. Um, I mean, I didn't think that's a somewhat separate question. I mean, not that it might or might not be a good idea to have um, to, uh, federal standards there. You, I, I was worried a little bit about, about trying to sort of specify sort of technological best practices in too much detail at the federal level. Um, that said, ECPA is really primarily about, um, you know, government access to information and also to some extent the ability of providers to voluntarily share uh, information. Uh, the question, I think, of, of either what should be required uh, as a sort of minimum uh, best effort to prevent involuntary or illicit intrusion um, is, is, I think, probably best considered separately. There are a number of bills pending that address that. Uh, Julian refers to deliberate, non-deliberate intrusions. Uh, ECPA and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act together are a principal protection against deliberate intrusions, hackers and people who intercept your communications and so forth. Uh, on the inadvertent side, there's been a huge focus on this in recent years, uh, attempts to uh, impose security standards. Uh, it's already been done for the financial services industry, for the healthcare care industry, uh, and for some others. And uh, there, there are several bills, I mean, a lot of bills pending right now. Uh, that do two things on, on data security. Uh, one is they require everyone who maintains personal information to uh, adopt reasonable measures to protect it. And then we also have the data breach notification bills. Uh, Senator Feinstein has one that's pure breach notification and uh, the, the, then other members of Congress have uh, bills that combine both. Breach notification says that when uh, the security of data of individuals has been breached, you must notify those affected persons. Forty-six states plus the District of Columbia already have such laws, and uh, there, there seem to be pretty good prospects for getting such a law at the federal level as well. I, I will note, actually, there is a link, I think, between uh, uh, sort of lawful government access to data or government data requests and cybersecurity, um, which is that any in any mechanism, basically, for government access either to communications metadata or to the communications content is, by definition, an authorized breach, right? It is a, an architected security vulnerability, in a sense. Um, and what we found is that as the volume of government data requests has grown exponentially, providers have had to find ways to automate the process to deal with that volume of requests. Um, I mean, you know, think of a startup going from you know, nothing to a million users in the course of a few months or a year, which is now pretty common. Think of the size of the legal team that startup is likely to have. Um, that can be an incredible burden. A couple of years back, a, a, a friend and occasional collaborator of mine uh, uh, recorded a, a sprint executive at a, a sort of national wiretapping conference talking about how um, GPS tracking had become so popular with law enforcement that they were getting eight million sort of individual pings in under a year period for um, a particular target's location. That's not eight million people being tracked, but eight million where is that person now requests. Um, and they said, look, there's, there's just no way we can handle this volume of information requests, uh, you know, 
by having an individual supply the information manually. We've got this wonderful back end called L-Site that law enforcement loves. It makes everything very easy, makes access wonderful. Um, and that's all great for them and for law enforcement. But it also does mean that this growing volume of information requests requires more streamlined processes for access to that incredibly sensitive information, which is, again, in itself necessarily a kind of security vulnerability. I know some press reports, I don't know how accurate, suggesting that a couple of years ago when hackers believed to be working out of China accessed uh, uh, email metadata about uh, Chinese political dissidents uh, that, again, I saw this in a couple reports suggesting that uh, they used a law enforcement backend to access that information. Um, there was a case in Greece about 2005 where, uh, again, unknown parties basically used wiretap software built into the uh, cell phone systems of, of the largest wireless carrier in Greece to spy on hundreds of top government officials. We still don't know who did that. Um, the systems companies have to create to comply with vastly increasing data requests from government are security holes in themselves. And I think that's a, a, a problem to consider when we create standards that create an incentive to shift uh, to these kinds of data requests. Uh, in the back, please. Well, I, I'll, I'll say, uh, not talking for specifically to Google, I don't know uh, what the requests are in our social products versus other products, but I can speak more broadly to this. Um, yes, indeed, there's, there's actually some, some uh, maybe Julian can talk about it more than, than I know, but um, there was a subject to a FOIA request, actually a manual from the Department of Justice about how to obtain uh, or, or what, what kind of information they could get from social networks and how to obtain it. Um, information on social networks is protected by ECPA. Um, information that you make public on the internet is not protected under ECPA. So it has to be, um, you know, it would be available for someone to just go and download if you post it on your public blog, for instance. Um, but uh, the issue about how, you know, if, is there a point at which it becomes shared with so many people that it's by default public that's not resolved by the courts? Um, I think uh, certainly if you send an email to a distribution list of 100 people, it would still be protected under ECPA. I don't see why that would be different if you share it with 100 friends um, on Facebook. So uh, I don't think that's going to be um, uh, different. It should apply to all of the material you put on, on social media. However, if it is public, if you make it publicly available, no, it's not protected under the statute. I, I will add, um, incidentally, you can also probably look online and find, uh, I think, again, subject to FOIA requests, uh, price lists and guides for law enforcement. That sites like uh, Yahoo and, and uh, MySpace have produced, you know, sort of saying essentially, uh, here's what we can give you, here's how long we store it, here's, you know, how much it might cost for us to retrieve it. Um, so you can actually get a pretty detailed rundown of the kind of information they have. Um, I'll also note that, you know, this is a link that I think is surprisingly not made often enough, but, um, you know, in, in addition to the sort of Fourth Amendment and privacy interests, there's a whole line of cases running back to the 60s that says that membership in any kind of political association, political organizations, right, um, have First Amendment protections. So there's a statute in Alabama, the state wanted to basically require the NAACP to turn over uh, regularly lists of who its members were. Um, and, you know, imagine 1960-something Alabama being outed as an NAACP member. It was um, not, did not make you very popular. Um, and so they, they ruled that there was a, you know, a First Amendment interest here uh, that blocked the government from uh, forcing the disclosure without a compelling interest of this, uh, these records revealing expressive association, even though, of course, the NAACP was a third party holding all these records, just like your provider is. Um, you know, and the way we associate now is that people are members of uh, Facebook groups and political mailing lists where they have these kind of conversations. Um, and so a very close equivalent, I think, to a membership list, uh, you know, in the 60s is the kind of information we routinely find on social media and from email metadata today. Um, and I think there's not nearly enough scrutiny has been given to whether uh, the sort of Fourth Amendment-focused analysis has given enough weight to the First Amendment interests that are implicated when we so easily disclose information that reveals uh, that kind of that kind of data about our uh, associational and expressive lives. Yeah, and and to add to that, one one other point I failed to mention: 
anybody, of course, who's the recipient of a communication can disclose that communication under ECPA. So if you share something on your social network with your 100 friends, any one of those 100 people without violating any statute can, can share that with law enforcement. So um, there is that part of, this, uh, of that aspect as well. Uh, do you have a question? No, no. Okay, excellent. Well, you get the last one. Yeah, I, I, I know you're focusing here on the government thing, but what I'm really more concerned about is, you know, one of my hundred friends not giving it to the law enforcement, but giving it to commercial interests or the world at large or whatever, and uh, you know, basically uh, being you know cautious about putting stuff on the internet is something we all need to learn. But particularly one of the limitations on people like Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, when you get all these solicitations from LinkedIn saying, someone invited you to join them, well, they didn't invite you to join them, they scanned their email list and created that uh, strictly by the computer. And there are lots of these sort of things. Are there any laws that really uh, apply to this or should there be? Um, well, there are definitely a lot of laws that apply to uh, to how information can be used by the, the providers that you interact with, like Google or Facebook or anyone else. Um, the, the main statute that applies uh, it, on the federal level is, is the Federal FTC Act, um, and specifically which, which makes unfair deceptive trade practices enforceable by the FTC. They can come after you, and, and they do. Um, uh, every state has a, a similar law. Um, and state attorneys general generally enforce those laws. Um, there are also some specific statutes with respect to uh, what generally are kind of silos of personal information, health data, financial data, um, and, and other data. That's generally how we regulate privacy in, in this country with respect to private uh, interactions. And then, of course, the terms of use that you enter into with these providers um, and the privacy policies are going to sort of establish contractual promises that then can be enforced both as contract law and also by these regulatory, you know, the, the the, uh, the beat cops in this area, the FTC and the state attorneys general. Yeah. There's also, um, the, I think the, the Federal uh, Trade Commission actually plays a, a pretty important role here. And, and this may even actually, I think, be, be preferable to trying to create, you know, sort of rigid blanket rules in, in, in an, uh, a changing technological space, which is just that if um, a company, and sorry, not to bring up sore memories, but Google recently had a run in um, involving this, right? If, if a company basically collects data from you and then uses it or shares it, um, in a way that seems to go against the the purpose for which they were collecting it and which they told you they were collecting it, um, the FTC will often step in and say, this seems to us to be a, an unfair or deceptive business practice. Um, you know, not, not necessarily because you're, you're having a kind of one-size-fits-all rule for privacy as such, but the, just um, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the sharing should be on, on terms that people have roughly uh, you know, gone into knowingly. So if you try and change the terms on people, if you try and share information uh, in some way that is different from what you gave them the impression you were keeping it for, um, that can be uh, a point of action for the FTC. Um, and that, that, may be, that may be actually to be the, the sort of the best way to, to handle cases like that, just making sure that companies at least are not, you know, basically deceiving people about what they're doing with information as opposed to saying, you know, here is how you must use the information or how you may not. Well, thanks. It looks like we are about out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and thank you to Will, Julian, and Charlie for their comments.